0: Since 1993, working time in the UK has changed by only minus one hour overall, with staff working on average 36.9 hours per week. However, in Ireland, full-time workers trump their neighbours by doing on average 40.3 hours per week. My name is Stephen Naughton and you are very welcome to the Good Boss, Bad Boss podcast episode 14. Thank you for joining us as we explore the world of work and leadership from a variety of different industries. This podcast seeks to entertain, educate, and hopefully change some behaviour to make working life better for all. Working nine to five, what a way to make a living. Barely getting by, it's all taken and no given. Dolly Parton singing about the daily grind, which is ironic, as she never had a nine to five job, leaving school to go straight into the Nashville music scene. Regardless, the lyrics have stood the test of time and echo people's experience across the world. It's nine to five if you're lucky. My guest this week is shaking this up big time. Andrew Barnes had a brainwave while on a flight that he wanted to revolutionise how we work. His premise is simple, the 180-100 rule. He will give staff 100% of their contract entitlements for working only 80% of the time, as long as they commit to giving 100% output. He put this idea to the test in his own company, Perpetual Guardian, and saw such great success that he launched the 4-Day Week Global Foundation. Andrew argues that by reducing working hours, we can increase productivity and create a happier workforce and stronger communities. I think this is a really fascinating conversation, so sit back, relax, and enjoy. Andrew Barnes, you're very welcome to the Good Boss, Bad Boss podcast. And welcome to Ireland as well. Oh, thank you very
1: much. It's it's good to be here. Sadly, it's only a brief visit this time, but uh, hopefully next time, I have a chance to get around and, and, and drink a little bit more Guinness, I have to say.
0: Yeah, well, you'll have to come to my local. It, it is the Guinness pub from the Christmas Guinness ad. So, <laughs> ah, yeah, that, oh. it's unfortunate that you weren't up around uh, this corner of the country. Uh, now, we're doing this remotely because you're in Cork, uh, talking to more companies about the work that you do. First, give us an overview of why you're on this mad tour of the world at the moment. Well, look, it's all by accident. I have to say, uh, about two years ago, I I
1: initiated a four-day week in my own company, which was occasioned, I I have to be honest, by literally reading an article on a plane that uh, made me think about productivity and whether, in fact, poor productivity existed in my own business. And then from that came this experiment of, of of paying my people to work, you know, for four days, but paying them for five days. And it exploded. It went from what we thought would just be a local news story now to a story that has run in uh, 82 countries worldwide with a global audience approaching five billion. The number of articles that have been written about it all over the world is is north of 4,000 and, and masses of social media. And, and so the reason I traveled the world is I suddenly realized that, you know, this was an issue that, that transcended borders and cultures, uh, and this was a chance to, to change the world, and you don't get many of those.
0: No, I mean, like it really is on people's lips now. You know, I, I heard you say that it was in Davos as well as a topic that people talking about this in Davos. People bringing in legislation in different countries off the back of the research that you carried out as well. And and just to give people an idea, this isn't this isn't some guy in his uh, in his shed with an idea. You're actually a leader of a large company in financial services. That's you, that was your background. Perpetual mm. Guardian was your company, yes.
1: Well, we are, the, we are the largest statutory trust company in New Zealand. Now, in terms of personnel, we are about 250 people in the core company. We've probably got another 50 or 60 spread across a variety of other businesses that we own. But we are the largest statutory supervisor in New Zealand. We broadly supervise the whole of the capital markets. We're the largest philanthropic trustee in the country, and we are the largest private client trustee in the country so you know in a country where only about a thousand businesses have over a hundred employees you know that makes us a serious player uh in our market and i'm unashamedly a businessman first and foremost i'm not approaching this from the concept of just you know simple work-life balance the question i posed to myself was all about productivity and how I maintained or improved productivity, uh, the, the four-day week journey it's become almost happened a little bit by accident.
0: You, you found yourself uh, reading an article that, t- that talks about the fact, I think the, the statistic was that people are only productive for uh, two hours and 13 minutes or so a day or something yeah, along those lines.
1: It was, a, it, was a, it was a survey that said the Brits were productive for two hours, 30 minutes. And if you were Canadian, it was one and a half hours it's because they're saying thank you so much. (laughs) Well, I I guess it must have been. Look, subsequently, there have been an awful lot of surveys that talk about three hours broadly being the appropriate level or the true level of productivity in most companies, um, and that's across a a range of jurisdictions. So, you know, that could be out by 50%, and it would still indicate that most businesses are not that productive. And there's an awful lot of unproductive time.
0: As a businessman, you kind of said, well, what can we do to make a change to this? And that's where you started doing the maths, as any good uh, businessman should, is do carry out some data leading you know, uh, studies into this and research into this. And it was the data you were looking for uh, to, to find out, is the hunch that you had, True in terms of changing to a four-day week, or was it something else that you needed to do?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. We we ran um, some research alongside the trial when we first initiated it, and that then drew out the benefits of doing the four-day week. And, and I guess part of this was, if I look back on my own, you know, career as a as a business leader, that it it actually forced me to start to question you know, a lot of the issues that I had just naturally assumed and absorbed as a business leader over, you know, my career, and and I'd started to question them in different ways early on, earlier on in other roles, but this really brought it home that if you change your approach to leadership, you can actually get some reasonably spectacular results.
0: That first trial that you carried out in your own company, and you you have uh, a board, board members as well uh, that you need to keep happy. I mean, they must have, I mean, the, <coughs> when you said, I'd like to put everybody on a four-day week, but pay them for five days and keep them under the same, same contract terms and conditions. They must have thought that you were having an episode?
1: Well, my leadership team two a man and a woman all said I was nuts. I cracked the board problem because I announced it on
0: national television.
1: (laughs) So uh, they all saw the broadcast and then said, well, hey, you know, there you go.
0: If we don't support him, (laughs) we'll look terrible.
1: (laughs) That's exactly right. Yeah. As they said, nobody wanted to be the guy who stood
0: up and said, you know, I don't think we'll do that. The practicalities of this must be uh, immense because there was probably people, even who were going to benefit from this, who just thought you were a bit mad as well and that it wouldn't work and it would disrupt their lives.
1: Yeah, look, I I think that there are different types of people in your company
0: and some people
1: will immediately look at this, understand what you're trying to do and they'll be on board and, and that's fine. And that will probably be the bulk of the company. But then you will have other, other people who will, first of all, people who are very productive already, and they will say, well, I cannot possibly be any more productive than I am now, and that therefore you're going to pile even more pressure upon me. Now, they need to be handled a different way. And then you have what I would loosely call refusenics, and and they are people who believe it will not work, but actually, in some instances, want to go further than that. They almost want to prove that it won't work. Yeah. Because it challenges assumptions that they have held dear throughout their career. We are all conditioned that working longer equals working harder.
0: Yeah. The coat and, on the back so, of the chair. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and I, you know, I was a creature of that. I started my career in the city of London uh, in the 80s, in the days, you know, when, when the, the city evolved as Big Bang happened. And we went from what was this almost cosy gentleman's club, let's have Sherry at 4 o'clock, sort of, um, and one could wear tweeds on Friday because you were going to the country, to an environment that suddenly was more ruthless than Wall Street, you know, in that we had to be in for 7 a.m. meetings, and if I could get a, an 8.30 train home at night, I was lucky. You know that was the culture, and that was relentless. Uh, And I moved to Australia and then uh, worked for an investment bank there, where you know the culture was even more ruthless, if that was possible, than I'd even experienced in in the UK. In that, your biggest competitor would often be the person sitting on the next desk. It it was, you know, and and you reach the end of that period, and and you just hate yourself. And I certainly that was the. That's that was interesting. The journey I
0: found myself for. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you talk about the the gentleman's club. I mean, you know, a lot of people would say, well, we don't want to go back to, to that situation where, you know, it was all very palsy-walsy. But we kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater as well because what we did was we, we threw away a little bit of well-being along with that. What do you think drove that? Was it was it Gordon gecko was it greed is good
1: uh, yeah I think it was actually well look it was it was modernization you're quite right I mean I, I was working in in what was then merchant banking let's call it investment banking and and merchant banking was really about an organization where generally your own money was being invested it was therefore very personal in a way and we changed that to 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 have this sort of Gordon gecko Wall Street you know investment bank really got rid of centuries in a way of tradition in about 2 years and at the same time you know you had globalization started to hit uh, and and it, 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 essentially your biggest competitor is not just the the club that you know the company that you know down the road you know there's a pile of companies in uh, america or japan or germany uh, and and yes we therefore to survive, had to out-compete. And not just them in our markets, but try and out-compete them in their markets. And so, yeah, we tossed the baby firmly out with the backwater, frankly.
0: How did leadership shift in that time, do you think? Because, I mean, it must have been difficult for leaders who were successful under the old traditional style. To be successful under the new competitive market i suppose
1: well yeah i mean i i i, I tell the, the the story in in my book of uh, of um watching a leader uh of, in my business have a nervous breakdown in front of me when i was about 23 and essentially that's what had happened the the old style culture had been swept away and that this chap was under intense pressure from the bosses up the line. And he in turn translated that to intense pressure on us. And that was why we were working, you know, ridiculous hours. Nobody could leave the office before he left the office. Now he lived just down the road. You know, mm-hmm. his commute was comparatively small. Mine was over an hour. And so you know, the pressure that was being applied, and, and you you naturally assume that this guy was being an out-and-out bastard, but he actually wasn't. You had to then realise that the pressure he was under was probably even worse than the pressure that we were under. Yeah. Uh, and, and obviously there was a guy in the next office who wanted to beat him to get to the, ne- the next job up the line. So it, it was a culture... That we have sort of cultivated in a way, and then we've developed it. That we've sort of said that it's a badge of honour to do that type of work, Yeah. And, and everything has to be sacrificed on the altar of you know being successful in business and climbing the greasy pole.
0: What do you think we've left behind that we need to rediscover from that time? And I know you were young then; you were you were uh, only well, a young.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think it's, and look, I think we do have to to rethink leadership. I mean, what we've done is we've abrogated our responsibility for leadership, and we've allowed the market to determine that financial outcomes, whether that's personal or corporate, trump almost everything else. And you're only now just seeing, you know, the debate shift, the needle shift a bit back towards looking at the broader responsibilities that businesses have to to, to society, uh, to their employees. But yet, you know, we still we still celebrate you know, financial success almost above everything else. And therefore for leaders it's very, very easy. You know, you just squeeze and squeeze to deliver those sort of numbers. And, and actually, you know, if chief executives jump from one company to another company to another company, you don't often get an opportunity to see a leader who plows their own furrow in a way and establishes a different culture. It's, it's mm. again, it's very rare that you're seeing that. Uh, and so where are the role models? for this. There just aren't any. And it's easier to look at what everybody else does and continue to to act on that type of, you know, very narrow perspective.
0: And I think as well, I mean, you you talk a lot about the the challenges that the world has and how the four-day week can contribute to that, you know, if we adopt it. And, and you know, there's a lot of talk about climate change and there's a lot of bandwagonism, you know, people jumping Mm. on that. But, companies do need to think differently about how they contribute, not just to the industry ecosystem, but to the world ecosystem. I think that's something that came through in your book as well, that you feel passionate about that, that this is not just about your industry anymore. This is about something much bigger. And we've only got about 20 to 30 years to get our act together.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the reality is, I'm therefore having to position this in the context of the environment we just talked about. So, the reason i place an emphasis on productivity and the delivery of better productivity by doing things differently is i'm trying to i'm trying to make it safe for business leaders to go you know what i think we might give this a try because i'm not having to go out on a limb here i'm not having to risk you know it's the nobody gets fired for buying ibm style of approach yeah It is more a point point of saying that actually this is a sensible, defendable business decision that just so happens to move the dial and address some of the significant issues that are facing us. And I feel that I'm having to go that way because that's the way that we'll get this accepted in the business community. To go from the other aspect, the work-life balance, the climate change issue – the chances are it won't get the, the reception that it yeah. deserves.
0: Because you have to lead with a metric that can, be, uh, that can be sold up the line. So you're speaking the language of, of, of the, the current climate, basically, in terms of management by metric. Give me a metric that I can defend.
1: Well, yeah, uh, you, that's right. But, but actually, very quickly, once you implement it, you actually find that you don't need the same level of monitoring and proce- of, of, of process review that you might have thought you had. Yeah. And so that's that's one of the contradictions of it. We we start talking about productivity as being a key driver of the things like the 40-a-week, but naturally now I don't ever look at those matrices because I don't have to because I can just see that my profits, my revenue, uh, all of those things are going in the right direction, but I can then tangibly see the benefits that are accruing to My staff. And then in turn, as far as we're concerned, we we have a method that we have to accrue time off uh, leave on the days we gift our staff off. So we're then gifting about a thousand person days a year to the community because we have we say to our staff, you have to opt When you opt in, you have to gift a day a quarter to charity. So we're starting to see a different model out of this sort of process.
0: That's that's brilliant. So there's a certain amount of corporate social responsibility built into the to the deal as well. Hmm. So what kind of numbers did you get after this experiment in terms of productivity? Because I mean, look, I spent half my year in companies helping (laughs) them increase their productivity and measuring things and and coaching people and team leaders to be better. But I mean, you know, this could put me out of a job. <laughs> so how how do you actually, what what kind of figures did you end up with after your pilot of two months? Right. Well,
1: well what we, first of all, that when we ran the pilot,
0: um, before we did the
1: pilot, we went to the staff and we said, right, think about how you will do things differently. Um, what is it that you will do both individually and on a team basis that will be different to deliver the same level of productivity. Our, our, our matrix is 1800, 100% pay, 80% of the time, provided you get 100% productivity. So you, you're not seeing a reduction in your salary as a result of adopting the four-day week. And then we ran independent research alongside it because I, what I wanted to see was what was both the uh, demonstrable outcomes from a financial point of view, but also about the impact on the staff. So we ran quantitative and qualitative research alongside. Now, what we got was we our, our revenue went up, our profits went up, our net promoter scores went up, our customer service scores went up. Our engagement, empowerment, enrichment... Enthusiasm, team cohesion, resilience scores went up on average by 40%, 40%. Wow. Stress levels dropped uh, 15%. And more people said they were better able to do their work working four days rather than five. So, this, you know, there was nothing in the whole thing that went the wrong way. Now, we did that and this is the bad news for you, Stephen, that we did that without a single consultant yeah. because we weren't doing major process changes. We were saying to the staff, we gave them, if you will, a safe environment for which that they could identify things that were holding back productivity. But we also made them accountable for themselves, but also accountable and respectful of their colleagues' time. Because if, you know, if, if I am terribly productive, but all the time I'm disturbing you, that impacts your productivity. And I have to be aware that, you know, for us to, to deliver this, we have to be able to achieve the team goal. And yeah. so it starts with individuals having to take a long, hard look at themselves about what they're doing and how their working day has to change.
0: Did it stick? did those numbers uh maintain or did it plateau and then take a little no. dip you know the way it happens you no. know there's a big enthusiasm yeah, yeah. at the start and everybody's on board and then Asher, uh, sure, look you know uh, we, yeah. we, we'll settle down to a new norm now
1: well this is the french experience of course the french legislated a 35 hour week it worked really well early on they got all the work life benefits that they were looking for they had a bit of an improvement in productivity and then very very quickly productivity dropped back down because hey it didn't matter what i did i was going to work my th- i was going to get my 35 hours now we were saved from this inadvertently by new zealand employment legislation and what that said is in effect that you have normal hours and normal days of work and the problem is that because we were running, we have retail branches, so we don't close the operation on a day. We we People rotate time off, and some people will have half days, some people have full days, uh, some people come in late and leave early five days a week. You know, it, hmm. it, the 180-100 applies. It's, it, all we're doing is we're reducing the amount of time that you spend in the office. But because of that, we had the problem of defining what normal was. And what we wanted to do is we wanted to ensure that you couldn't slide into that sort of complacency. So I wanted the ability to say to my staff, look, as long as you take this seriously and you deliver on your side of the bargain, namely maintain productivity, I will gift you a day off a week. But if you don't i have the ability to say all right everybody back on five days a week and and to do that you know we had to finesse the legislation but that's what makes this work because both sides understand that it's a gift not a right
0: yeah so it's not an entitlement
1: yeah it's not an entitlement if you do not deliver it can be withdrawn now i've only had to do it once Right in the whole time we've been doing it uh, during the trial, we had a team that decided that half of them would take Friday off, half of them would take Monday off, and then, at the end of the trial came back and said, "Well, um, service standards fell yeah no no surprise there. What it actually did is it identified there was a leadership problem in that team. No other team. And the whole organisation adopted that approach, but this team did. So we then had to address the, the the fact that the leadership was was not actually as strong as it should have been.
0: Were they just and, not and being so that, creative enough? Were they were they not behind it, the concepts as a leadership? No, team? I think
1: it was the lead the leader was just complacent. It was well. It's easier for me to just go, you lot take friday off you lot take monday off that was it it mm. wasn't addressing the real issue which is how did we do things differently to make this work because it's not just about you know an, an effective 20 percent improvement in compensation mm.
0: but i i do hear you know and as going into companies myself i hear people oh well that'll never work for us because we're special it'll <laughs> oh, never work I'd for be- us
1: I'd be a very rich man, Stephen, <laughs> if I had a buck for every time I do that. So the, one of the things that's fantastic is you, you will – and it happens every time. Every time I talk on this topic, wherever I am in the world, and someone will stand up and say, well, that's very, very condescending in a way. Well, that's you've got a nice little company. Um, it, you know, It works for you, wouldn't work for us in our industry. Big call. You're making a call for a whole industry. And the problem is that usually – you turn around and say, "Yes, but it is working in your industry, and here's this company, here's this company, and here's this company." The other thing is, all you have to do is run a trial. All mm. I'm asking you to do is to go to your staff and go, "Guys, run a trial." Yeah. Try, try it. Ask them how they would work differently. And if it fails, the worst that's happened is that you have got a more engaged, empowered, enthusiastic team because you at least tried it. You will get better productivity measures out of that exercise because part of the job is that we identify how you should be measured. What is it that your team produces? That's your very worst outcome if it fails. And the reality is in most companies it doesn't fail. The other thing we get, I have to say, is is that they don't look at their own industry, but they try and work out the most convoluted industry there is out there <laughs> that will then also prove that it won't work. And, and yeah. you know, I've had all sorts over, over the years, the, to which, of course, the answer is quite simple. I don't know how it would work in that industry, nor do you. Ask your staff. Mm. Ask them to find the solutions. And and for them to be right, i.e. the leader who says it isn't going to work, to be right, then the way that they are running their business today has to be perfect. Yeah, Because otherwise, there is always a chance for opportunity. Now, that's a massive call, I believe, for any business leader to say that actually, no, I'm such a genius that my business... Is is being run to the best efficiency it could possibly be.
0: How many companies do you know of? You know, what's the saturation of of this at the moment? Are we at early adopter phase?
1: Well, we are in terms of the whole overall universe, but there are thousands of companies doing this. And the story, as I said, is now in I think eighty two, eighty three countries. Wow. I would say in. It must be – I would be very surprised if in each of those 80 countries there isn't at least somebody giving this a go.
0: Yeah.
1: We are seeing concentrations of activity. For whatever reason, the United Kingdom uh, is doing quite a lot in this. There's a lot of companies that are giving it a go uh, in the UK. Um, obviously, you've got countries like Holland where a 28-hour week is is close to being a norm. Wow. Uh, so that's going well. You've got Germany, where you know the Metal Union in Germany negotiated a 28-hour week a few years ago, and that's in you know that's car manufacturing, and and, and you would you'd, you'd know that of course the Germans aren't well known for productivity. <laughs> yeah. So you know uh, it, it, it 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 is more widespread than you think, and and we will get several calls a week from all over the world. From companies that are saying, "Look, we're we're thinking of doing this. How can you help us? Can you help us to to work out how we might at least start the process?"
0: Yeah. The one thing that I have to ask you is, so you said yourself, "City of London boy." In terms of your uh, your embarking on your career, Cambridge, am I right? Is that where you went to, to yeah, uni yeah, as well? Yeah. So you know, fairly traditional place too. City of London financial background, you move to Australia, more finance there you're you're in, I mean trustees and uh, you know it's a very, very traditional industry, an organization. yeah, not exactly known for its creativity or its thinking. You've done something that people would associate with uh, Palo Alto and Silicon Valley and or Seattle even, which is a bit more hipster. this is this doesn't come from your industry. I'm, I'm really curious uh, no. as to where the creativity uh, came from.
1: Uh, well, look, you know, I'm probably the last generation that got into finance without actually having to do an accounting law or economics degree. I am an archaeologist by trade.
0: Really? Uh,
1: <laughs> that, I, I wasn't expecting a, that. No, no, no. I then <laughs> had, a bit of, I had a bit of time uh, in the Royal Navy. Now, I, 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 that's relevant because... We often think of the military as being, you know, command and control, but actually it's not, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the fundamentals of really good leadership you will find in the military, because if you want your men and young men and women to do the unthinkable, you've got to be able to lead and motivate them to do that. And that t- those early lessons taught me the difference between what was good leadership and what was bad leadership. And it also taught me that nobody, again, to use a military parlance, no one goes over the top for a flag or a mission statement. Mm. They do it for the person on their left and the person on their right. And this is what, this is really what we're, we're coming back to, which is to create an environment where you have you've, you're creating an environment where people feel that they are in a team where there is respect, not just you know of their own time, but also other people's time. And and so yeah, is it a, is my background, <clears throat> you know, traditional? Well, you could argue it is. You know, hell, you know, Cambridge, military, finance, but but my. You know, I was the freak of my family that went into to finance. Everybody else are artists. Really? So, wow. yeah. So, you know, I mean, I don't know. I, I it, it, they're, they're clearly buried in all of the numbers was a creative streak, but a lot of it comes back to I've seen, I've seen good leadership, I've seen appalling leadership, in in my time. And I had this epiphany, I guess, at one point in, in my career where I'd come out of working for investment banking in in Sydney and I realised how much I hated my life. Uh, and there's a wonderful phrase, I think, from Nick Hornby's book, Fever Pitch, which is, is life shit because Arsenal are shit or the other way around? <laughs> and in many ways it is possibly one of the most profound statements. You know, what is it, is it what you're doing that's making making life awful or is life awful because of what you're doing? And, and it's, it, it's, it's that thing that made me stop as a leader and say, actually, I am never, ever again going to run businesses and teams the way I have been conditioned to do. I'm always going to try to do things differently, to bring my team along. And this is arguably just the latest in a series of experiments which I have attempted in businesses that I've run over the years. And yet- Probably more radical than some.
0: Yeah, you. Yeah, definitely having having a little bit of a ripple, all right, in the industry. But, but you, you, so so this has been something that's really important to know. Actually, you've been experimenting and trying things as you've grown as a leader, going from you know being a worker yourself to maybe being in charge of a team for other companies, and then being at the head of your own company you've been constantly experimenting
1: yeah that, that's right and initially i have to say i i my philosophy was about communication and so when i was doing some transformation work in 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 a couple of businesses that i was running and we had to you know improve performance a lot of that was getting the communication right getting people to buy in to the message that I wanted to deliver creating that strong culture and and team culture. But what happened is that, yes, we got, you know, I I was running this business and we were doing these internal scores of, you know, engagement and we were knocking it out of the box on every single criteria, with the exception of work life balance, where my staff were working more hours than was healthy. Okay, they were saying that they loved it, but on the other hand, somebody in that in their family, someone in their community, was paying the price for the fact that you know a member of the family was never at home. They were working, you know, five days, six days, seven days a week, long hours, and so this is the next step of that, which is is trying to get exactly that same culture, that understanding, that mutual respect between leadership and and your team, but also recognizing that the the benefits, which, you know, financial benefits, say, for example, which often accrue to leaders, um, yeah. business owners, they are not being shared necessarily with your team. So Elon Musk can sit there and say, you, have, you can't change the world on less than 100 hours. Good, because Elon, you're making billions. Hmm. But the person who's working in your factory isn't. And if you're making them work 100 hours, that's not right because there's a price being paid somewhere. Either they're paying it personally now or they're going to pay it in the future because they're going to be burnt out or because their family's going to break down or because they're not having the relationship they should have with the kids or what, whatever. You know, We have to recognise that we borrow people's lives yeah you know we we don't own
0: them yeah absolutely i mean i tell people constantly that the real currency we have to start thinking about the real currency being time when you when you do a deal with an employee you're buying their time that's actually the real currency that they're trading is the time that they're going to spend on your work your goals because while they could work on their own goals you know they have they have choices. Yeah, but but see, and the tweak here is, of course, that actually, you we are being lazy because we
1: are buying their time.
0: Hmm.
1: What we actually are doing is buying their
0: capability to produce
1: stuff, whatever stuff is for the company. It's,
0: it's outcome rather than the time spent. Yes.
1: So, and this is at the heart of the four day week,
0: in that if you
1: can do it in four days or in reduced hours, then why would I cut your salary? Why would I cut your pay? Because you're producing what I'm asking you to do. And so all too often we use time as the surrogate for productivity as opposed to saying, no, this is what I need you to produce. And the classic example for this is women returning to work. You know, the first thing they do after having a child, come back, negotiate a reduced house contract 80% of the time, 80% of the pay, and then produce you 130% of the productivity. I mean, it happens time and time again. In fact, we know it. The best workers you'll have. (laughs) The best work is your why? Because they can manage their time. Mm. And so this is what we've got to move to. We've got to say no. This is about output. And actually, if if I can make it comfortable for you to find those efficiencies, knowing that your job is not at risk, your salary is not at risk. Because what I want you to do is actually be the best you can be in the office. But the best you can be outside the office, because that in turn will give me the creativity, the loyalty, the enthusiasm, because I'm giving you something that you can't buy. It's Mm. time.
0: I am always fascinated with where people get their inspiration. And from a boss point of view, from a leadership point of view, I always think that, you know, nobody, nobody comes out of the womb a great leader they they learn things uh from others. Who were the bosses that influenced you that that that's made you this kind of radical thinker? I mean, it must kind of be funny to you to think, God, I'm a radical thinker now, but there yeah. you are. You, but you are, whether you like it or not. So who are the people that influenced you, you know, whether it be in the army or financial services or where I,
1: well, <clears throat> it would be remiss of me not referring, of course, to the ultimate boss. Um, and, and a good Irishman to boot Which of course is Sir Ernest Shackleton You know, whenever uh, you think about uh, The heroic era of exploration You end up uh, I was, There's a wonderful phrase that You know, in certain circumstances You you want Scott And in something else you want somebody else But when it gets really shitty You get down on your knees and pray for Shackleton <laughs> and And, you know, the ultimate boss Because of the ability to lead, motivate, be creative, right? So he's always been a, a huge inspiration for me. But, you know, I, I was lucky enough to serve in the Navy on, on, under a very, very good CO and probably my, my last ship. And I learned a lot. Uh, I learned a lot from him. Uh, and, in fact, uh, you, you know, a, a guy who wasn't afraid, uh, uh, in fact, to tell me to get out of the Navy, uh, right. which, which either because he thought I was rubbish or whether he thought, you know, when, more to the point, it was the environment at the time. But then I had a series of traditional leaders driven out of, you know, the, the, the culture in uh, both London and, and Sydney. And I can think of the chap in, in Sydney you know, one of his motivation techniques uh, was a conference where on everybody's desk when we rocked up was a blank resignation letter. And he said, I want you all to sign the resignation letter in front of you. Don't date it. He said, I'll fill that in for you whenever I think it's appropriate. Now, that was actually quite, you know, and that was, you know, it was known that this guy, was appalling. Yeah. But he was delivering, you know, very much back to the thing that we talked about earlier, he was delivering on numbers and nobody in the organisation was bothered to challenge how that was being achieved. Yeah. Now the world's moved on, luckily, from that. But, you know, those sort of lessons stick with you because you see and that was the point, you know, ruthlessness was at the heart of that culture. And if you didn't do it, then there would be somebody around the corner who would.
0: Yeah, and it's rewarding, the absolute wrong thing to, to go down that. You know, interesting that the, the best boss and the worst boss both were implying that you needed to leave at some stage. But- <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. There's but a how they consist- did it. <laughs>
1: yeah. There's a degree of, degree of consistency in message here. Um, yeah. Maybe I... <laughs> um,
0: well, I actually, I do think there's something in that. I mean, I think everybody does need to figure out what the exit is because gone is the day where you're going to be here forever.
1: Yeah, look, I think that's right. I think that's right. But, um, but I think the challenge is for a lot of companies now that it is very difficult to see, you know, great role models because... Leadership isn't something that's very high up in the skills that we teach. We teach, you know, we go to business schools. We go for management courses. Um, leadership is, is something that can be taught and should be nurtured. But actually, most of our business leaders, in inverted commas, probably are good managers, first mm. and foremost. And, and their leaders are very poor second.
0: Yeah. It's funny you mentioned the, 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 the armed forces. It's probably one of the only places I can think of where they actually teach leadership first. If you go into cadet school, you get taught to be a leader as a a, a basic. Whereas I can't yeah. think of many other places that actually do that. We always teach the leader how to be a leader after they are a leader a while.
1: Yeah, we do. And, and so that's why I'm, you know, I've found that actually having been given, I wouldn't say training, that's probably too strong but but understanding what constitutes leadership it was actually very very useful it's a lesson that i haven't i think i haven't lost over the years and it's amazing that now i come back more and more to looking at those lessons of the of leadership as taught in the military and i'm starting to see them being applied you know more and more, mm. more in my business um, and, you know, uh, one of the one of the last, it's a well-known phrase in the Royal Navy, um, you know, a good ship is a happy ship.
0: Mm.
1: Well, I would argue that's partly what we've done in our business. We're making our business happy because yeah. we are able to allow, enable people to achieve things, and, and that's outside of the office as well as in the office, that mm. they never thought that they would have the chance to do. And that in turn means... They give better performance. It's not rocket science. It's been well known for years. It's just for leaders often to make this step, I think they feel it's, it's a bit of a leap into the unknown. Most of the evidence is out there and, and the evidence is overwhelming that if you do this, then actually you'll get great outcomes.
0: If there's anybody listening there who's a leader who have, has influence in a company that would like to explore this idea and uh, see if it could work for them. What's the first easiest step for them to take? Well, buy my book. <laughs> um, no, or just I'm, call the four, I'm, I'm,
1: the four day week. The four day week. The the reason it, I wrote it is I just can't drink that much coffee. Um, <laughs> in that I was being asked on a regular basis how we did it. So the book is the start point. But the result we decided from the get go that this was. Really interesting. So, we created the website uh, fourdayweek.com, and we have put everything we've ever done on that website Uh, our research, not just our our own research, but research from other universities around the world. We have our contracts, how our, our legal opinions, what worked, what didn't work, articles from around the world on this and we we're happy to share that uh, with anybody you just mm. go on the website and have a look at it um there is our white paper which covers an awful lot of the details around the trial again it's freely available on the website uh, and and you know we're always happy to to respond to to emails uh, and calls as well because you know you don't get many chances to change the world uh, and and this one for better or for worse, happens to be mine, and the benefits are so enormous, not just to your company, but to society, especially given, you know, we've now got, what, one in four, one in five of our workforce at any time with a stress or mental health issue. You know, these people are not being productive already. You change the way they work. You will get better productivity from that, so you know this is really important stuff uh, and and we want to share that with anybody that says, "Hey i 'd like to give it a go," and the message is very simple: your productivity will go up mm. your profits will go up you know there is nothing
0: lose here. That's a great note to leave it on. Andrew, thanks very much for your time. I know you're really busy and there's a million people looking to talk to you about this, so I'm really grateful for the time you've given me. Great to talk. Andrew is a great example of courageous leadership. It's not an exaggeration to say that he could have lost a huge amount, his job and the company, by following this idea, but he showed great courage and built an alliance of like-minded people to help him execute it. Who are the courageous leaders in your company? Who are the radicals that need your support to make a big impact? Plenty to think about here. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us the greatest favour and share it with all your friends and colleagues on Facebook, LinkedIn, or even just through a good old-fashioned email. Give it a five-star rating on iTunes too, as that really helps promote the podcast to others. If you have a guest you'd like to hear from or any industry you'd like me to find out more about, please mail me at stephen at and you can find more from me on Instagram at goodbossbadbosspodcast. I'll be back next month with another Good Boss Bad Boss guest. Until then, goodbye.